I hope you have your Bibles open to Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. If you haven't yet, I invite you to do so. Open your Bible, swipe uh, on your phone, or use one of the Bibles uh, under the seat in front of you. Make your way to Revelation 19, verses 1 through 10, as we work through this text this morning. I can't think of two uh, much more joy-inspiring words that a man or a woman can utter to someone else than, we're engaged. Uh, Nikki and I recently actually got in the mail just this week an invitation to a wedding coming up near the end of July. And all the joy and excitement that comes along with, with a prospective wedding, with the hope of being united to someone in covenant relationship for a lifetime. There are uh, a few words other than we're engaged that can bring about such gladness and anticipation and rejoicing and so many other conversations about dresses and flowers and decorations and music and Cake. Oh, cake. We, man, um, I'll get off on uh, how delicious our wedding cake was, but that's for another time. We're engaged. Man, this, those are exciting words. When Nikki and I uh, uh, got engaged uh, at the tail end of a mission trip in South Africa, by the way, gentlemen, that's how you do it. Uh, we, uh, I proposed to Nikki in the middle of this market in Johannesburg, uh, filled with all sorts of local vendors and that sort of thing. And, um, it was, I had this whole thing planned out and forgot all the words I was going to say. Uh, but she said yes anyway. And as soon as everybody in the market knew that we were engaged, all these guys started coming out of their stalls with, uh, with drums and tambourines and all that. And they're playing and singing songs about getting married. And I have no idea what they were singing, uh, but they were singing for us. And they were excited. I think more than anything, they just wanted us to buy their things, and it was a good occasion to, uh, to sell their stuff. But all the same, we're engaged. We're getting married. Those are exciting words. And so we come here to chapter 19 of Revelation and this picture of a, of a wedding, this picture of a, of a marriage supper, this announcement of two people united together in covenant love. And it's not a man and a woman, it's Christ and his church. We've come to the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. Uh, What an exciting and just encouraging, joyful scene uh, that we come to here in this wonderful book. As we work through Revelation 19 this morning, we're going to see, we're, we're coming out of the tail end of the, the sort of that funeral procession, the, the, the mourning of all the people of the earth over the fall of Babylon because all of their wealth, all their power, all of their riches, all their influence were bound up in the, the, the religious and ideal, the idolatrous religious and ideological schemes of the world. And coming out of that, we're, we're met with this contrasting picture, not of sadness that Babylon has fallen, but rejoicing that God has been just and rejoicing that the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. These two things, the fall of Babylon, the marriage supper of the Lamb, are a source of exceeding praise and worship for the church of Jesus Christ because all of God's promises are are coming to their full and final fruition. Here's the main idea of our text today. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The Lamb has blessed His bride with His everlasting covenant love. As we work through Revelation 19 this morning, we must come to, as as believers, as those who love Jesus, come to worship him with gladness, with a smile on your face. Are you glad to worship Jesus? Well, tell your face, okay? I'm kidding. We must worship Jesus with gladness because he has united himself with sinners and he will judge and and he will bring justice uh, in his holiness. 
So let's look at the first five verses of Revelation, the, uh, Revelation 19. This text is kind of broken up by this constant refrain, hallelujah. And so that's kind of be the, the point of the text. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. God is just. We see from verses 1 uh, and 6 that this whole passage of Revelation 19, 1 to 10 is essentially carried along by the worship of the Lamb's people. Twice in Revelation 1 and then in Revelation 6, we see that great multitude crying out from heaven. This multitude is the same multitude, I believe, from Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, that great multi-ethnic multitude who are the, the physical representation of the, the symbolic 144,000 sealed of the Lamb. These are that great innumerable crowd that Christ has redeemed from among the nations for himself. And here in Revelation 19, they are worshiping the Lamb. Now, it's hard to pinpoint whether John sees these as the saints who are rejoicing now in heaven or as a future, at a future date when God finally judges Babylon and all of its forms at the end of the age. It's hard to know if the worship service in Revelation 19 is, is something that is, is happening presently in the presence of God in heaven now or if it's something that's coming finally at the end of the age. But friends, at the end of the matter, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter all that much. It doesn't change the meaning of the text. What's far more important is not when it's happening, but what is happening. What are the saints in heaven doing? They're worshiping. They're praising. They're singing. They're delighting in God. And they say over and again throughout this passage, hallelujah, hallelujah. Now that may sound like a, uh, if you're new to church or new to Christianity, that may sound like a kind of a gibberish sort of word. I don't know what it means, but Christians say it all the time and they sing it in lots of songs, so it must be something good. Hallelujah is a real word. It's a Hebrew word that means all of you, all y'all, praise Yahweh, praise the Lord. It's a call to corporate praise. So when you say hallelujah because you found a parking spot at Costco, understand that you're calling all of the people in the parking lot at Costco to praise the Lord for his blessing. And maybe, maybe, you want to, maybe you want to use the word hallelujah a little more appropriately. But it means all of you praise Yahweh. And this, this phrase, hallelujah, occurs four times in Revelation 19. Did you see it? Once in verse, in, in verse 1, again in verse 3. Um, I missed one. Thank you, verse 4. And then one in verse 6. Three times hallelujah is said by the saints. One time it's said by uh, the elders around the throne of God in heaven. It is praise to God. It is worship of God that is the theme of those who belong to the Lamb. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord, all of you. In verses 1 through 5, they worship the Lord. They sing hallelujah because God's just judgment has come upon every form of idolatrous worship and the persecution of the church that has taken place at the instigation of Babylon the harlot that we saw in Revelation 17 and 18 last week. When God judges Babylon, like we saw last week, he simultaneously saves his people from Babylon's influence and demonstrates his glorious justice and uh, exhibits his perfect power. And the saints glory, the saints rejoice in the manifestation of God's character in all of these ways and God's love for his people rejoicing in the character of God, rejoicing in the glory of God, rejoicing in the power of God is not a new theme in Revelation. 
We've seen it a number of times. Revelation 4.11. We hear the saints singing, Worthy are, or the uh, uh, people around the throne in the throne room of God saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Pastor Danny read for us from Revelation chapter 5, verse 12. We hear those saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And Revelation chapter 7 verse 12 we heard those saying amen blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our god forever and ever amen revelation 19 1 says hallelujah salvation and glory and power belong to our god because his judgments his judgments are true and just he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality he has avenged on her the blood of his servants The saints in heaven rejoice in verse 2. They rejoice in God's vengeance on Babylon, his vengeance for the blood of the saints. Do you remember going all the way back to Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, when the fifth seal of the scroll was opened and John saw or heard a voice from under the altar, the voice of the martyrs, those who had lost their faith for the testimony of Jesus, crying out to God, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? How long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They're told at that time by God, wait a little while longer. And they're clothed with with white garments that represent the righteousness of Christ purchased for them, clothing them by their faith in him and told to rest for a while more. Well, here in Revelation 19, their prayer, how long, O Lord, has been answered now. Now I have judged Babylon. Now I have judged wickedness in all of its forms. Now, God says, I have poured out all of my righteous justice against those who have hated me and put you to death for loving me. Now justice is done. And what do the saints do? They sing, hallelujah. God has answered our prayer. At the destruction of Babylon, those who are crying out, how long, O Lord, wait no longer. Their prayers are answered. God's justice is vindicated. Now it's kind of weird Verse 3, they cry out, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. That's weird to our Western American ears to hear rejoicing in the everlasting burning of an enemy. But it's not so weird when we realize that Babylon, as we've seen it uh, depicted throughout Revelation, that Babylon has stood for every effort of religious idolatry and immorality to destroy the advance of the gospel. That's what Babylon does all the way through. That's what these wicked, sinful schemes, religions, ideologies, uh, ideologies and, and, and philosophies do. They seek to corrupt the saints, to corrupt the world, to stop the advance of the gospel. The everlasting burning of Babylon is a joy to the saints because it means that she will never rise again to oppose God and persecute his people. It is good that evil and wickedness is judged finally and forever, never to rise again. There is no resurrection For the harlot Babylon in the end times. Even when Christ gets in, even Jesus gets in on the worship leading. As we we see John saying that he hears a voice from the throne that calls the great multitude of God's redeemed servants to praise him. Verse 5, and from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. 
This voice from the throne is probably not the voice of the Father. It's more likely the voice of the Lamb, the one who shares the throne with his Father, saying, all of you praise God for his sovereign work of salvation and final judgment. Even Jesus is in on leading the saints to worship God. Jesus' death, Jesus, the the first faithful witness mentioned in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, he who is the faithful witness, who himself was killed by those idolatrous worldly powers, his death too is vindicated in God's final judgment on the evil of the world. And so he calls the saints to worship. Friends, understand this this morning, that God's future justice, Babylon has not yet been destroyed. She will one day. And God's future justice deserves our present praise. The destruction of Babylon is not a reality for us yet, but it is a certain reality in the future. And because we have certainty, because we are confident that God will bring his justice to its final conclusion one day, perfect and finally, we can rejoice in that reality today. It might be a little bit weird for you to think about rejoicing in something that hasn't happened yet, but friend, we do it all the time. When your favorite football team has clinched a spot in the playoffs, you start rejoicing in the reality that they might make it to the Super Bowl. You start rejoicing. You start even thinking about how hard will I party when the 49ers win their sixth Super Bowl trophy. We start celebrating in in, in anticipation when we think about birthday parties. Some of us love birthdays. And we know that come November 17th, Pastor Stephen's birthday is showing up. And you start rejoicing in the fact that I'm going to be another year older. Perhaps your own or your children. My wife, I've said it before, she loves birthdays. And she starts celebrating our family's birthday like the first day of the month of their birthday and carries it through all the way. She loves celebrating the, the, just another turn around the sun and the blessing of having family in our home. We celebrate babies being born before they're ever born. You ever been to a baby shower? It's like, hey, the baby's already here, and before that blessed poop machine has ever entered into the world, we are rejoicing in the fact that he or she is on the way. We rejoice in things before they've happened all the time. And so knowing that God's future justice is certain, we can rejoice in it today. We can sing hallelujah. God is just today, even though Babylon has not been judged completely, knowing that God will be, will be faithful and just to do so at the end. So church, get used to worshiping ahead of time for what God is going to do. Hallelujah. God is just. Verses 6 through 9 of 19 have a different encouragement, a different call or a different reason for worship. And it is this. The saints sing hallelujah. Why? All y'all praise the Lord. Why? Because the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. The marriage supper of the Lamb is here. Now again, in verse 6, the great multitude chimes in to sing hallelujah one more time with a voice like rushing water and peals of thunder. Can you imagine that worship service? Can you imagine that, that sound of singing, like rushing water, peals of thunder? We're in the monsoon season now in New Mexico. Praise God. Thank you, Lord. We've needed it so badly. I love the thunderstorms that come with monsoon season. Just the rumbling in the sky. My kids hate it. They don't love it. And my dog always goes running under the bed. But I love it. Like, get me out in the lightning. I don't know why. It seems dangerous. But I love it. 
Just the, 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 the raw power, the, the arresting sound of thunder as it uh, shakes your house, the flash of lightning. And this is how John describes worship in heaven by the saints. That kind of power, that kind of magnitude, that kind of, of attention-grasping uh, magnificence. The saints sing hallelujah like this. And now they praise the Lord because... He's reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord, all y'all. Why? Because the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. He is king. Now, this is not to say that there was ever a time when God was not king, and there's ever a time that God was not reigning, or that Christ has not been king uh, of kings and Lord of lords since his resurrection from the dead and ascension to the right hand of God, but that his reign is so absolute. They're rejoicing that his reign is so unopposed that what else would we do but worship? The scene gets better, though. That funeral procession for Babylon in chapter 18 has now given way to a wedding feast for the bride of Christ. The marriage of the Lamb has come. And now, I've been to some boring weddings in my day with stuffy formal receptions and boring music and schedules to keep that make everything just a drudgery to get through. But weddings in ancient times, friends, were nothing like this. Weddings in ancient times were not boring. Often, weddings were week-long festivities that culminated in one massive celebratory feast that solemnized the bride and the groom's commitment. Week-long parties for people getting married. We need only look to John chapter 2 to see that the first of Jesus' miracles where he turned water into wine. And where did he do that? At a wedding celebration where people are going nuts for this bride and this groom that have joined their lives together. Weddings were exciting days. So when we read about this story about the marriage supper of the Lamb, this is not like a a formal uh, invitation that you respond to, that you RSVP with your selection of chicken or beef at the dinner, and you have your your specific uh, uh, table seating spot and all that, and you sit there formally, and you go along with all... No, this is a party. This is a massive celebration when Christ is wed to his bride. Here now, though, the the saints are not celebrating a human marriage. We know that. But a spiritual marriage, a theological marriage. This is the marriage of the Lamb, who we know is Jesus, the Son of God, to his bride, who is not a singular woman, but to his bride, who is the church. Those who he has redeemed from every tribe, nation, tongue, and people group uh, to the glory of God the Father. This image of of God being married to his people is not a new image. Throughout the Old Testament, God relates himself to his people as a husband to his bride. Isaiah 54 verse 5 may be the most explicit example of this. There the the Lord says through the prophet Isaiah, Your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the earth he is called. The marriage supper of the Lamb is a picture. It's an image. It's a symbol of the covenant union that Jesus, the Lamb, has with his people, the church. They are bounded together in covenant love forever. Now, this is not a romantic union. There's, there's none of the right sexual expectation that comes along with human weddings in the marriage supper of the Lamb. But this is a union of unending covenant love and faithfulness one to the other. It is to say that for time unending, Jesus and his people will be together and that nothing, nothing, nothing will separate them. In fact, it's the marriage of God to his people that infuses human marriage with all of its true meaning. 
In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul explains how wives and husbands ought to relate to one another. And in so doing, Paul says that marriage is about so much more than this guy and this gal staying together forever and having kids. Human marriage, Paul says, is meant to be a picture of the gospel, a picture of the good news of Jesus Christ. The way that a man and his wife relate to each other is supposed to reflect the way that Christ relates to his people. He loves them with a self-sacrificing, everlasting love, and the church loves him in return with repentant faith and service as Lord of lords, and the whole thing is a heavenly delight for everyone. Now notice here in Revelation 19 that the bride has made herself ready for this wedding day. She's made herself ready by dressing in pure white clothes. Now even modern weddings still practice this, the bride wearing white from head to toe. Biblically and traditionally, white is a symbol of purity and of the intentional preparation that has gone into that day, the anticipation that has, uh, uh, that has covered the, the preparation for that day. In the marriage supper of the Lamb, the white garments of the bride are the righteous deeds of the saints, John says. Now, I think there's a dual meaning in this. The white garments are the righteous deeds of the saints. I think John is saying two things at the same time. On the one hand, the righteous deeds of the saints that clothe the bride of Christ are nothing more than the faith that they have in Christ's righteousness for their salvation. We know that apart from Christ, we have no righteousness of our own. Apart from Christ, we are sinners, separated from God by our rebellion against Him, doomed to everlasting punishment because of our sin. We have nothing that makes us right before God in and of ourselves. So if we have any righteousness before God, it comes to us as God gives it to us in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21, the Apostle Paul says about Jesus that God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become in Him the righteousness of God. So the righteousness that the saints are clothed with is nothing more than our trust in Jesus who makes us right with God. But on the other hand, I think John is also saying that the righteous deeds of the saints do have some implication to, uh, or some connection to what saints do in their lives until their death. The righteous deeds of the saints are also the lives of faithful endurance amid persecution that Christ rewards with garments of wife. Remember Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, as Jesus was speaking to one of the churches in Asia Minor. He said, endure with faith and I will clothe you with white garments, right? With a picture of his righteousness. So the white garments that the saints are clothed with are a picture of the righteousness that they're given by faith in Christ and a picture of the righteous deeds of, of life enduring with faithfulness until Jesus comes again that has characterized their life all the way through. Now, ultimately, these aren't clothes that point to the bride's righteousness, but these are clothes that point to the righteousness of the lamb, that point to the righteousness of her husband, the one who has redeemed her. We also see here that the church of Jesus Christ is not just a bride, uh, but also the attendance at the wedding. John has done this a lot in Revelation, where he'll be, he'll be speaking about one thing, and he'll speak about one thing with two different images. Remember, he heard a list of 144,000, and he saw a great innumerable multitude. Here now, the bride of Christ, the church, those who belong to Jesus, are pictured as a bride who's getting married to him, and also all of the people who get invited to the wedding. In verse 10, an angel says to John, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
glad in the Lord, joyful in all the redemptive purposes of God are those who have been invited to this marriage supper, to this marriage celebration. And they are blessed indeed because they've responded to the gospel call to enter the kingdom of God by repenting of sin and trusting in Christ. Those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb here in Revelation 19 is not speaking about all of those who have heard the general gospel call in the world. It's not just saying blessed are, are those the, 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 who are invited to this marriage supper because they heard the gospel even if they didn't believe it. No, what John means here is blessed are all of those who heard the gospel, who received the invitation and RSVP'd with repentance from sin and faith in Jesus to be at that supper. Blessed are those who have received the gospel. Jesus told a parable to illustrate this blessing, this blessing of being invited and responding with faith, responding with obedience to this invitation. In Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 to 14, Jesus told this parable. Just listen. Again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention. They went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry and he sent his troops and he destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready. But those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and they gathered all whom they had found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. In ancient days, when you showed up to a wedding, you were given a garment to wear. When you received the invitation to the wedding, you were given a garment to wear, a tunic, a shawl, something to indicate you were a proper guest of the wedding. When the king came to look at the guests, he saw a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot, cast him into the outer darkness. In that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This angel says to John, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who have heard the gospel call that Jesus is King of Kings, the Son of God, who gave his sinless life as a ransom for sinners on the cross, dying to pay the penalty for their sin, rising three days later in power and glory, risen never to die again, ruling and reigning over all things now. Blessed are those who have heard that message and said, yes, Jesus is King. He is Lord, not just of things, but of my life. And because he died for my sin, I'm repenting of it and giving my life wholeheartedly to him as master and commander of my soul to be united with him forever. I am RSVPing to the wedding feast in heaven by placing my faith in Jesus Christ. Blessed are those who receive that invitation and respond with faith and obedience. Jesus says there are some who will receive that invitation and disregard it, who will say, ah, I'm busy, got better things to do. There are some who will receive that invitation and even seek to put to death, even seek to persecute those who bring that invitation. Those are not the ones who will end up in that final marriage supper. So we have this call, we have this encouragement. Blessed are those 
Blessed are those who respond to that invitation. I have one encouragement for you this morning, friend. In light of what we see, hallelujah, the the fact that the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. One encouragement to you, one call to you this morning. Get to that marriage supper. Get to that marriage supper. Receive the gospel with faith in Jesus. Receive that invitation. Be counted among the blessed who will be there in that day. Listen, God's intention for the church is not only to save them from sin, but for them to know unending covenant closeness with their Savior, to be conformed to His image, to be like Him in every respect. In this way, human marriage is meant to serve as a type. Human marriage is a foreshadowing. It's a road sign of the final marriage of Christ to His church. When you heed the call to repent of sin and trust in Jesus, you are united to Jesus by that faith in Him, in a covenant bond that will never be broken. In the same way, the individual believer is joined to Christ's bride, to His church. We're not just saved individually, but we're saved along with all those who have also been saved. On the same basis of the same covenant of God's grace to us in Christ, we experience union with Jesus, closeness with Jesus in this present age as the Holy Spirit dwells in our hearts by faith, but we also look forward to personal and corporate union with Christ in the age to come after all sin and wickedness has been judged in God's righteousness. Put simply, the marriage supper of the Lamb is the great hope and expectation of all who belong to Jesus, because in it, the spiritual realities of salvation have come to their eternal, perfect, final fruition. Dear friend, don't find yourself cast out from that wedding supper. Get yourself to that supper. Receive the gospel with faith in Jesus. Recognize that it is your sin, your rebellion against God that has separated you from him. Turn from it and turn to Christ, the sinless Son of God who gave his life for you. Receive him as Lord. Be united to him by faith. Give your whole life from this day forward to persevering in endurance and devotion and growth in closeness to him, and you will find yourself at that supper. But you'll only find yourself there by faith in Christ and no other way. So friend, get yourself there. Finally, verse 10, we read, John saying, then I, uh, excuse me, 9 and 10, the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. We end with one final praise to God. We've said, hallelujah, God is just. Hallelujah, the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. Now finally, praise God. Praise God, friends. The gospel is true. The final image of this passage is interesting because it pictures John, the apostle, the fellow servant in the gospel with the churches to whom he is writing this revelation. John falling down in worship, not before Jesus, but before an angel. This should strike us as a startling image because all along in Revelation, John has been relaying the call from Jesus to the church to flee idolatry, to flee from worship of spirits or people that are not God at every turn. And here now John is falling down to worship at the feet of this angel. Immediately the angel rebukes John. You must not do that, he says. I'm a servant with you of God's sovereign plan for salvation. Don't worship me, worship God. Can we stop for a moment and just remind ourselves, because I need to, 
that we all need help to remember not to worship things that are not God? My goodness, if John was susceptible to idolatry, surely we are as well. God alone is worthy of worship because he is just and because he is uniting his son Jesus to the church forever. And he's worthy of worship because the wonderful message of the gospel, which is the testimony of Jesus, the wonderful message of the gospel is totally and utterly true. The angel said to John, these are the true words of God. The final statement of verse 10 is interesting. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. John says to the church, we ought to understand the word spirit here, not as Holy Spirit, I think, but as essence, which is to say the spirit of prophecy is the essence. It's the intended outcome of prophecy here. All true prophecy, John says, has its essential guiding principle. All true prophecy has the testimony to the death, burial, resurrection, ascension, return, and eternal reign of Jesus at its core. The gospel is true. This gospel is true. The gospel is the essence. It is the substance of every true word of prophecy. So every true prophet will proclaim the true and adulterated gospel. And friend, if you hear someone calling themselves a prophet and they are not proclaiming the true and adulterated gospel, you have good reason to doubt whether they are really a prophet. And God will be sure, understand, God will be sure to preserve his wonderful news of salvation for every generation until Christ returns again because these are his true words. Praise God, the gospel is true. God is worthy of our worship because the gospel is true. So church, I invite you this morning, give glory to God. Give glory to God. His life-changing word is true and unchanging. His life-changing word, his life-giving word is true and unchanging. Now, very likely some of you, as we've worked through these now almost uh, 19 full chapters of Revelation, don't worry, we're getting close to the end. Likely some of you have not agreed entirely with my interpretation of every symbol and every vision in the book of, the Revel- uh, in the book of Revelation. Some of us grew up in ages and in churches where very specific and particular views about the chronology of God's final judgment were taught that are quite different from how we have approached Revelation in the course of this series. Good, God-honoring, Jesus-loving, mission-focused Christians have been engaged in gracious difference and debate on this since the seven churches of Asia Minor read this letter of prophecy for the first time. I've said a number of times on hard passages in Revelation, we ain't going to solve it today because the church hasn't solved it in 2,000 years. Now, Christian, while we may come to the book of Revelation from different starting points, theological or presuppositional starting points, if we're reading it faithfully, we'll all come out of Revelation doing the same thing. If we're reading Revelation faithfully, we'll all come out of it doing the same thing. We'll all come out of it glorifying God for the life-giving and life-changing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We'll all come out of it rejoicing in the certainty of Christ's physical return for his people. And we'll all come out of Revelation committed to faithful endurance in Christ until he comes again. If we're reading Revelation faithfully from whatever sort of eschatological perspective we're coming from, if we're reading it faithfully, we'll all come out in agreement on those things. His word is true and unchanging. The gospel is the heart of every true word ever spoken about Jesus. So church, we who are the bride of Christ, or at least one representation of the bride of Christ, let's get busy. Let's get busy 
not glorifying our, our own perspectives on revelation, not glorifying our own eschatological presuppositions and conclusions, but let's get busy glorifying the God of justice who saves sinners. And let's get busy making much of Jesus, the lamb who was slain for the sins of the world. His word is true. And if we read it faithfully, we'll all come out on the other end of it praising God for the same things, glorifying God for the beauty of the gospel, rejoicing in God for the salvation he gives to us in Christ, making disciples of Jesus, of all nations, because we know that that's what we have been called to above all else. The Lamb has blessed his bride, Revelation 19, with everlasting covenant love. And he has made us to be his witnesses to the world so that his bride may increase and the wedding feast may be packed to overflowing to the glory of God and to the delight of his people. So let's get busy taking this life-giving, never-changing gospel of Jesus to the nations, making disciples that they might know him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.